0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the history of anti-Asian hate in America dating back to the very first racially discriminatory immigration law, the ramifications of our imperial exploits in the Philippines, the pattern of lynchings, the myth of the model minority, and the role of white supremacy to keep everyone in their roles and white people ignorant of it all. Clips today are from The United States of Anxiety, 538 Politics, In the Thick, Democracy Now, Worst Year Ever, Boom Lawyered, and Social Distance.
1: We now know all of their names. Delena Ashley Yun, Paul Andre Michel, Cao Jie Tan, Soon Chung Park. He Yoon Jung Grant, Soon Cha Kim, Dao Yeo Fung, and Young A Yu. Eight people killed in and around Atlanta in yet another act of white violence. Seven of the victims were women and six of them were Korean and Chinese Americans. I've had a lot of conversations about this violence over the past week, and I'm stuck on a couple of themes that just keep coming up. The first is just how depressingly predictable the whole thing was, in part because we've all become so accustomed to breaking news about men with guns killing strangers they don't like for all kinds of reasons. But also because for more than a year, Asian-Americans all over the country have been saying, hey, we don't feel safe. There's a problem here. Pay attention. Which leads me to the second theme that I keep coming upon. So many people can't seem to wrap their heads around this particular brand of American racism. Yes, it's easy and appropriate to drag the police deputy in Cherokee County who blamed the violence on the shooter's, quote, bad day. But if we are honest, a whole lot more people, including people who consider themselves more woke than the next, have struggled to hear the Asian American community. That's been true for a long time, and it's owing to all kinds of confusion and complexity around where Asian Americans sit in this country's maddening racial caste system. I've had a lot of conversations with well-meaning people who have struggled to understand this. That's another pattern I gather. People across the spectrum struggled to even hear that that Asian Americans were at risk at that moment.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the other part about being Asian in America is being, you know, like the invisible people. You know, we're kind of trotted out when it's convenient, trotted out to be scapegoated and blamed, or uh, to be accused of being the, um, you know, foreign invader, the perpetual alien, um, or to be the interloper and the wedge to, um, to attack other people of color, to be used against black people. And that's something, you know, the, the quote, you know, model minority racist myth that exists that says, well, you know, why complain about race? Look at Asian Americans they are doing so well when in fact that's not even true. So those kind of falsehoods about who Asian Americans are uh, come out when it's convenient and the rest of the time uh, it's that we're invisible. So. Mm It's hard for people to wrap their heads around the fact that Asian Americans have been experiencing racism from time immemorial on this uh, continent and that's part of the systemic racism of America when we yeah. when we talk about you know systems that of oppression that need to change Asian Americans fit into that but because we've been rendered so invisible even our allies even fellow progressives you know uh, sometimes they're shocked and it's like oh you experience racism or now you know what racism is like and all uh, we can do is look and say no we know what it's like um yeah. you know atlanta is a wake-up call not so much for asian americans but really a wake-up call for the rest of america
3: There is a long history, right,
0: from the 1800s. So if you look at the Page Act in 1875 that was specifically designed to control the entry of Asian women because of either the reality or the stereotypes and some combination thereof in terms of what the gendered labor looked like when Chinese immigrants came to work on the railroads. Fast forward to the 1900s in terms of U.S. military interventions abroad, as well as U.S. military bases that exist to this day that create all sorts of problems in terms of how vulnerable sex workers and just Asian American women are throughout the world in terms of what U.S. military interventions and military presence looks like. So what we're seeing here should not be seen in isolation to that larger historical and contemporary dynamic.
4: I think it's quite important here is the history and the context in which these stereotypes evolve. So he mentions the Page Act of 1875. This is prior to the first major federal legislation, 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. And the Page Act is created in part not because Chinese women are necessarily all prostitutes. It's created in part to reinforce that stereotype and to stop Asian people from multiplying in the United States. Because if you allow Asian women into the United States as you allowed Asian men in, in order to man the work on mines, in laundries, in farms, then what you will do is produce more Asian people. So it's explicitly in the congressional record, one of the things we want to do, we mean in the federal government, is to limit the expansion of the Asian population in the United States. And that is part of the reason why the Page Act of 1875 is passed. And it's passed because under the justification, however, that it's going to be limiting moral turpitude. But as it turns out, it's instigated in order to stop Asian men from reproducing with Asian women. Now, to the extent that they then get with white women, white women then lose their citizenship status in the United States, because if you married an Asian man at that time, you would lose your citizenship status. And by definition, your children could not become citizens. So it's not until 1952 with McCarran-Walter, that in fact, Asian Americans can become naturalized citizens. So it's important to consider not only the immigration trajectory and the reasons behind this, the longstanding anti-Asian sentiment, which is different in a way, but also very similar to how it is that the United States treated African Americans during this period. They were not even humans, and they were still at this time in the mid-19th century not included into the body politic. It's important to also consider the colonial and imperial history of the United States. In the very recent past, who do we take as an entire country? We take the Philippines and the Filipinos in the United States are, I believe, Karthik, correct me if this is incorrect, the second largest population of Asian Americans in the United States. The Philippines remains a part of the United States until it's given back to the Philippines, I believe, in the 1930s. And at this time, even now, the American colonial and imperial influence can be felt in the Philippines in the same way it is felt in Korea and in other places in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, among them. When we think about this, it's not just a question of military involvement, and it's not only Americans. I give you none other than the example of the euphemism of comfort women, which is really a term that we should stop using and instead recognize that women that are taken by the Japanese Imperial Army throughout its colonial and imperial ambitions in the 18th and 19th century are the sex slaves of women who were primarily Filipino and Korean. So this is a Practice not just of American militarism and American imperialism. This is a practice of patriarchy, wherein a euphemism, something like comfort women, serves only the man and serves the soldier. How does it describe the woman? Certainly, it is not comfortable for her to be a sex slave. So the point here is that it's not only the American military or white people who inflict these kinds of crimes and suffering on women it's people in general when political structures and systems allow them to Let's go back to that judiciary hearing from last week where our former ITT guest Erica Lee Yes. She also testified she's a professor of history and Asian American studies at the University of Minnesota. And she broke down this history of racist legislation against Asian Americans. Here's what she had to say.
5: In 1871, 17 Chinese were lynched by a mob of 500 in Los Angeles. This was the largest mass lynching in U.S. history. In 1886, a mob of 1,500 forced out all of Seattle's Chinese residents. In the early 20th century, South Asians were expelled from cities and Filipino Americans and Japanese Americans were attacked. Most recently, in 1982, Vincent Chin, a Chinese-American, was beaten to death in Detroit because his attackers thought he was Japanese and blamed him for the economic decline in the auto industry. Throughout the 1980s, attacks on Korean shopkeepers and Southeast Asian refugees were widespread. After 9-11, hate crimes targeting Muslim, Middle Eastern, and South Asian-Americans increased by 1,600%. As these incidents reveal, Asian Americans have been terrorized. We've been treated as enemies. We've been discriminated against. The government of this country has not just ignored this problem, it has been part of the problem. Throughout much of our history, Congress and other elected officials have promoted and legalized anti-Asian racism through its laws and its actions. In 1875, Congress passed the so-called Page Act, which effectively barred the entry of Chinese women because lawmakers believed that all Chinese women were prostitutes. In 1882, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, the first federal law singling out an entire group for immigration exclusion based on race. By the 1930s, all other Asian groups, Japanese, Koreans, South Asians, Filipinos, were also barred from the U.S. and prevented from becoming naturalized citizens. Asian immigration did not fully open up again until 1965. In 1942, President Roosevelt signed an executive order that allowed for the incarceration of 120,000 Japanese Americans as prisoners without trial.
4: Because they were innocent American citizens of Japanese descent, by the way. And they were incarcerated by their own government and told that it was for their own good. Yeah. So, Sun Young, can you talk about this history and how do we grapple with the hatred, the anti-Asian hatred that is in the fabric of this country?
6: Thank you so much for bringing that up. You know, when you were saying that earlier on and naming Page Act, I think you're one of the first reporters to actually start there. A lot of people start with the Chinese Exclusion Act, Mm. which actually came after the Page Act, right? Exactly. So we have to remember that Asian American women, Asian women were targeted, again, not just because we're Asian American and not just because we're women, but because we're distinctly those two things, right? As the first targets. And, you know, to name us as prostitutes in that legislation. I mean, if you read that language, right? That's not just neighborhood people trying to keep us out of their neighborhood. This is our Congress. Mm -hmm. In case people forget, you know, that this is our elected members of Congress writing these things down and frankly... The way they continue to invisibilize our community in legislation and in policy solutions hasn't changed too much other than to, you know, perpetuate the stereotypes that has harmed us, that at best keep us You know, invisible and at worst puts a giant target on our back for hatred, Mm -hmm. othering and sexism and misogyny. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we start with 1875 Page Act, but you move into the Second World War and Korean War and Vietnam War and you know, the occupation of the Philippines, as well as other Pacific islands. I mean, I myself am, you know, I'm a Korean immigrant. I came to this country when I was 18. And the hometown where I am from called Chuncheon um, had a large US military base where we lived. And, you know, m- my grandparents were really poor on my dad's side. And, you know, They lived right behind the military base. And you know who lives in and around the military bases in Korea? Mm -hmm. It's always the poorest people. Mm -hmm. And they're completely shamed and shunned by the rest of society Mm -hmm. because of the work, the economy that we're relying on, Mm -hmm. U.S. military personnel, and the demand is sex, right? And so we need to make sure that narrative is brought into the fold about why Asian American women are targeted this way, right. right? We can't just say, Oh, it happened to be women or they happen to be Asian American, but he was really targeting, you know, sex workers or perceived sex mm-hmm. workers, right? Like right. there is a narrative in this country that fetishizes and objectifies and hypersexualizes Asian American women in specific ways. Yep. And then also I don't want it to get lost that, you know, one of the most amazing connection that I had over these past couple of days, like you're saying, Marie talking to mainstream, mostly white reporters has been very difficult. But I was on this show, Sentita Jackson, who's the daughter of Reverend Jesse Jackson. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was able to bring Language that I've been wanting someone to connect that, like, as women of color, we're hypersexualized in our very specific ways and that we're sick of it, right? <laughs> exactly. And <Hello. laughs> so, again, as we're talking about sexualization of Asian American women, you know, I want to bring into the conversation of hypersexualization of Black women right. and Latinas right. too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and indigenous women. And, mm-hmm. you know, when we talk about sexual violence against mm-hmm. Asian American women, we can't forget all the missing indigenous women and black women who the law enforcement frankly couldn't give a fuck to yep. look for, right? Yep.
7: Yep. Because yep. our, our yep.
6: lives are so devalued. Mm.
1: You wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post last April, almost a year ago now, that said this moment was coming. You said it felt a lot like the early 1980s. Can you take us back to that time, the the, the early 1980s? What was it about that that was similar to now?
2: In the 1980s, actually, actually, that story begins in the 1970s because the America was in a series of economic crises. They were oil crises. Where the uh, there was an oil embargo against the United States and gas prices and oil prices just shot up. People couldn't afford to drive their cars anymore. Their American-made dinosaur cars that got maybe seven or eight or nine miles a gallon. <laughs> Hard to imagine today, but um, you know gas was so plentiful and cheap that those cars were, <laughs> you know, adding to the fossil fuel crisis. And so then, when people couldn't afford to drive them anymore. Um, the whole manufacturing sector of America tanked. We were in a, a recession throughout the country and a severe depression in the Midwest. I was in Detroit then. I had been an auto worker myself and got laid off during that crisis. And people were suffering. These were you know, very steady jobs, um, high-paying blue-collar jobs that uh, people wanted to have and when the um, auto industry collapsed, people who had, you know, thirty or more years of work, um, you know, in this industry, suddenly had no future at all. Mm-hmm. And not just them, but their kids, who they had hoped to uh, get into that um, industry as well. And so, what we had was a country that was suffering, a region that was suffering, and and initially. People were pointing fingers, you know, the uh, UAW, the workers blamed the companies, the companies blamed the workers, and it just went on and on until there was a kind of an aha moment. Let's blame Japan. Japan is at fault for America's problems because they could make fuel-efficient cars, and therefore um, Japan was the enemy, There was, you know, uh, it was like an echo chamber across the country where there was so much hatred that was spewed. Let's send another atomic bomb against Japan. Let's, you know, get the enemy. Let's eliminate the enemy. And what do you do when there's an enemy and an existential threat? You kill them. And that was repeated over and over again um, about Japan. And then anybody Mm -hmm. who looked Japanese had a target on their heads until one day. A Chinese American uh, named Vincent Chin was out celebrating um, his upcoming wedding that week and two white auto workers saw him and said, it's because of you mother F's that we're out of work. Uh, A fight ensued and uh, the two white auto workers stalked him through the streets of Detroit, found him and beat his brains into the streets and uh, that would have been bad enough, except that those two white auto, auto workers were sentenced to probation for killing a Chinese American in an intense climate of hate. Yeah. And uh, a, a big, you know, national civil rights movement um, led by Asian Americans with Detroit as its improbable epicenter emerged out of that where Asian Americans came together and came together with black, white, brown, Latinx, every walk of life, every uh, faith there is came together okay. um, to fight that injustice and about that hate crime. And if we fast forward to today, I have to say that uh, the climate we're in today is remarkably similar to 1982 when Vincent Chin was killed.
1: And why is that? What 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 is similar about it?
2: Well, instead of Um, blaming japan now it's uh, you know china is to blame for everything that's going wrong in america and not only that we have um we have a pandemic there's a you know we all are living in um you know fear of of catching this virus most of us are one degree of separation or less from somebody who has become very sick or even died and so there's that terrible pain and we're in an economic Crisis, you know, a global crisis this time, where um, I haven't heard any economist actually predict uh, very well what when the light at the end of the t- that tunnel might come. Mm-hmm. And so people are suffering. People are se- severely in, you know, in need. And so right now is a lot like the 1980s, except I have to say, worse. You know, Vincent Chin was killed in the third year of that economic crisis. We're just at the beginning of this one. Mm. And as you said in your lead in, many of us looked at what happened, not only to Vincent Chin, but really throughout the whole history of Asians in America, where we have been the scapegoat for almost every economic crisis. And there have been massacres and lynchings and mass killings and uh, injustices where nobody was ever punished for those things. And then in the 1980s, we saw it again. And, And here we are. So, as you pointed out a year ago, many of us were looking at this today and saying, it's going to get worse. And some of us even voiced that what happened in Atlanta could happen. And uh, and so here we are at our worst nightmare.
1: There's, a, there's an enormous amount of history that I have only recently learned myself, some from reading your work. Uh, and it, we don't have a ton of time, but I want to walk through some of it. I mean, in particular, the, you know, the data that's emerged about the anti-Asian harassment and attacks now from the Stop AAPI Hate Coalition it suggests that it's a disproportionate number have been targeted women. Uh, and certainly that's what we saw in Atlanta. There's a history there, too, about the overlap between misogyny and anti Asian ideas. Can you talk us about some of that history?
2: Well, certainly. I mean, you know, just watching the sheriffs in Atlanta say, well, it can't be related to racism because. You know, it was it was women being attacked and sex addiction and all that stuff as though one can separate out gender and race and other, you know, things that make us human. And one of the ways that racism works against um, any group includes the sexualization of, of women. And for Asian American women, what that means is being both seen as this exotic, you know, a sexual object, as well as being uh, passive and submissive, and in many ways that makes um, Asian Americans a prime target for predators, because the the racist and misogynistic um, view of Asian Americans uh, is is to be a, a you know prime victim, not fighting back and desirable, and so um, the as you pointed out, the Stop AAPI Hate has recorded two to one that the uh, people being attacked in these self-reported hate incidents and hate crimes are women. And that goes back to the thing about uh, people who are vulnerable, who are are seen as vulnerable. Uh, Asian American women, Asian American seniors and elders, Asian American children um, are being specifically targeted. I mean, children who are being harassed by adults and so, a lot of Asian American parents and families are really terrified of what's going to happen when schools open up and their kids, you know, have to get to school and then be in school. But that, but, but as you were saying, the the um, you know the way Asian American women are viewed is part of a whole, you know, racist, a racial construction that includes gender.
7: when if you can talk further about the history targeting Asian Americans and the uh, violence targeting Asian Americans going back more than a century—
3: well, I'm coming to you from Los Angeles, and one of the well, the worst mass lynchings in American history happened here in downtown Los Angeles in 1871, when a mob of about 500 uh, white and white men uh, murdered uh, 17 Chinese men and boys. And this was not an isolated incident. This was taking place throughout the Western United States. Uh, even I have learned some of these incidents. Most recently, I've learned about uh, an incident in in Oregon in 1884, where 34 Chinese miners were murdered. And so, what happened was that Chinese immigrants had come to the United States to work on the transcontinental railroad, and when their usefulness was expired, they were they were let go and had to make a living for themselves in the American West. And anti-Chinese fervor uh, among the white working class was was called, you know uh, was encouraged by the media and by politicians against scapegoating a, 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 an Asian other in the United States to to um, to deal with white working class economic frustration, and. Other Asian populations that came after the Chinese were also subjected to these kinds of of feelings. Obviously, there was the Japanese-American internment when 120,000 Japanese-American people, many of them citizens, were put into concentration camps, even though people of German and Italian descent were not. Racist incidents against Asian Americans have proliferated in the last few decades as well. Most notoriously, the murder of Vincent Chin in 1982. He was a Chinese American who was mistaken for Japanese by two Detroit auto workers who were frustrated by Japanese economic competition, and they beat him to death with a baseball bat. They did not spend uh, any time in jail. Uh, In 1989, five Cambodian and Vietnamese school children were shot and killed in a Stockton schoolyard massacre by a white gunman, which I feel is a direct outcome of, uh, you know, the wars in Cambodia and Vietnam that the the United States fought. Uh, In 2012, in 2002, I'm sorry, uh, uh, six Uh, Sikh worshipers at a Gurdwara in Oak Creek, Wisconsin were massacred by a white supremacist gunman. And these are just some of the most notorious incidents. But again, throughout American history, from the 19th to the 20th century up until the 21st century, we've seen repeated incidents of both singular and mass anti-Asian violence taking place periodically.
8: There's a lot of ethnic cleansing
9: that happens in, especially the 1800s, but even after that. And, and I, I, I want to take a moment to say something about mass shootings in general. Um, this, this is something I first heard from Vicky although I think there's, there's sort of precedence to this, which is about mass. The, the sort of mass shootings we see today are basically just sort of individualized versions of the sort of mass communal violence of, of the, the 1800s and 1900s. And so, you know, if, if you want to look at what the sort of model for the shooter is, you, you know, you can look at the, the sort of anti-Chinese riots and broader anti-Asian riots, because, and this is the pressing thing about this, every single different Asian American national ethnic group has their own massacre that specifically targeted them. You know, I mean, just just to to go through, there, there's 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 a whole just particularly on the west coast, this entire wave of ethnic cleansing. And mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it starts in the 1860s, but just 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 to like read some of these, so you get an and understanding like a partial list of just like how many of them there are. Just there's the Chinese massacre of 1871, San Francisco riots of 1877, 1885. There's and this, this is this is one of the common themes of this is Chinese expulsion from Tacoma which, you know, they'll just run to every Chinese person. It depends on the ethnic group. There's also, like, every Indian person in, uh, I think it Everett, I think, just gets run out to Canada. There's the Rock Spring Massacre in 1885. There's the Issaquah attacks also in that same year in, in 1886. Seattle has a riot. They try to there's you know, this. an anti-Asian riot. There's the Hell's Canyon Massacre, which is another, another thing that happens is that, like, rail workers and miners who are uh, Asian just get slaughtered by particularly white workers who are pissed off with them for, like, you know, the fact that their wages are lower, and, you like know. they and, brought and in to
10: bust the union, yeah.
9: <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's more, it's, yeah, it's more than that, though. It, uh, the, the The Chinese workers who were brought in in, this, in the 1800s are, a lot, of, a lot of ways are supposed to be replacements for, sort of, enslaved black labor, and also has to do with a, mm-hmm. a transportation problem where you can't really, like, it's actually, like, hard to get across the U.S., and so th- there's no good way to, sort of, just mass like export sort of the newly freed slaves from the South to the West coast. So they bring in Asian workers to do this. And you know, this, this just drives white labor insane and they just start massacring people. And then, and and, you know, this happens and this continues like through the 1900s, like in, in 1907, there's something called the Pacific coast race riots where, you know, this is, this is a multinational riot. And this, it starts, I think it starts in San Francisco, it, but by the end of it, it's, it goes to Bellingham, and like there, there's there's an anti-Chinese riot like in Vancouver. Jesus. Yeah, and you know this is this is this is the tradition that the shooter is working in, right? You know, and there, there's there's a the specificity of sort of evangelical you know, anti-sex worker violence here, but there's also just you know this is this is the modern continuation of just the ethnic cleansing attempts that you know, in a lot of cases succeeded. You, you can see this in California. If, you, if, you, if you're if driving through California, sometimes they'll just be random Buddhist temples. And there's no Asian people there. And the reason there's no Asian people there is because every single one of them was ran out. And the rest of the area is completely white. But, you know, the, the, the things that they built are just still there. Mm. And Santa I think... Is sort of the cleansing.
10: So I teach uh, freshman comp and a couple other classes. So I teach a lot of young teens just out of high school. And one of the things that I see all the time is just an absolute ignorance about American complicity in these kinds of things. Racism is seen as something that's in the past. There's not really a good education about these things. So the the responsibility of whiteness in all of these uh, horrific events is never addressed. And so they're just inheriting the the whatever is in their family community and mm. and it's just it's unaddressed and so they're coming to this with this you know white innocence again like i don't know anything so i couldn't have done it and that's part of what's being preserved by not teaching it yep and, and this kind of this all it all goes together <laughs> there's this
1: there's this other element of white uh, of of american exceptionalism that i see getting wrapped up in how we don't talk about these acts of ethnic cleansing that Christopher was yes. just going over, because if you look at if you look at what actually happens in the act, if you look at their death toll, they don't sound wildly different from things that in our lifetime have occurred in in parts of the Middle East, in Africa, and part of I think why we don't talk about it is that it would mean acknowledging that the same kind of strains of racial mass violence um, have been are are a, a central part of American identity, and we don't like to think about yeah. That.
7: Reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism: take action to stop Asian hate and protect AAPI communities. The Stop AAPI Hate Reporting Center was launched in March of 2020 in response to the escalation in xenophobia and bigotry toward Asian American and Pacific Islander communities in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Their goal is to track and respond to reported incidents of hate, violence, harassment, discrimination, shunning, and child bullying. Additionally, they provide multilingual resources, support community-based safety measures, and restorative justice efforts, and advocate for local, state, and national policies that reinforce human rights and civil rights protections. This work is done with the understanding that in order to address anti-Asian racism, we must work to end all forms of structural racism against Black, Indigenous, and other communities of color. On their Act Now page, the organization lists a number of resources, including what to do if you're the victim of or witness to an incident of hate, and ways you can get involved to help make lasting change. These include encouraging those who have experienced or witnessed acts of hate toward AAPI communities to report an incident at stopaapihate.org. The reporting form is available in 11 languages, and these reports guide policy development and advocacy. Donating to local efforts through the Movement Hub, a platform of 40 USAAPI organizations that advance racial equity and intersectional justice and are all part of the Shared Liberation Network. Asking your elected officials what they're doing to increase resources for survivors and their families and for intervention and prevention-based programs, such as anti-racism education in schools and communities. Advocating for expanded civil rights protections that would safeguard Asian Americans and others from harassment and discriminatory treatment in private businesses. Supporting ethnic studies in your local school districts and educational institutions, which teaches the sources of our country's anti-Asian racism and helps promote racial empathy and solidarity. And, of course, supporting local Asian-owned businesses, which have been impacted before the first COVID-19 case was even confirmed in the U.S., Go to StopAAPIHate.org and click Act Now for more actions, details, resources, and more. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if supporting AAPI communities and ending white supremacy is important to you, be sure to tell everyone you know about taking action to stop Asian hate and protect AAPI communities so that others in your network can spread the word too.
11: Do you see the breeze blowing? Can you feel the winds have changed? Do you
7: smell the scent
11: of roses or does rotten air remain? Do you feel the time has come when we rectify what's wrong, putting all where it belongs as we stand up and be strong? Because it's time to make a difference in this fickle world of change.
12: Black and Asian folks in this country have been beaten down by white supremacy since we first got here, right? From slavery and the need to add a constitutional amendment to recognize Black people as full people and citizens to the Chinese Exclusion Act, which explicitly barred Chinese people from immigrating into this country. And then when they did immigrate into this country to build railroads and to help develop the economy, Asian-American, Chinese-American women were excluded from coming because they didn't want Chinese people building families here. Right. And then, of course, we have the internment of Japanese-Americans during World War II, but not German-Americans, which is nice. And so it's just clear that anti-Asian sentiment runs as deep as anti-Black sentiment, and we don't really talk about it enough. And from a personal standpoint, I've been really distressed watching the, the conversation play out on Twitter because I'm seeing a lot of finger pointing on both sides, right? Like I'm seeing Black people responding to this to sort of calls that Black people stand in solidarity with the AAPI community. I'm seeing Black people respond with, well, you know, they're racist too, and they're guaranteed black too. And every time I go into a beauty sh- supply store run by a Korean family, they always follow me around the store. And then I'm seeing people on the other side saying, well, you know, in Oakland and in, cer- in the Bay Area and certain areas of the country, the violence against Asian Americans is perpetrated by Black people. And, you know... It's just these are stereotypes that I don't find particularly useful. And I find it distressing that that's
13: the the tenor of the conversation right now. Precisely, because this is a white supremacy problem. As the white person in this conversation, this is a white conversation. This is a white problem to fix. It's not a question of groups better supporting each other in the face of white supremacy, that's carrying white people's water for us. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't need to happen. And so, yeah, white people, this is our thing to fix. And, you know, part of this conversation, it all comes
12: back to stereotypes, right? Like, why is it that when I walk into a Korean beauty supply store in Oakland, I'm followed around. Mm-hmm. It's because of stereotypes about black criminality and where do those stereotypes come from? White supremacy, right? And 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 so when we talk about when when for example, the lawsuit that was filed on behalf of Asian Americans against Harvard saying that Asian Americans are discriminated against in affirmative action programs and that less qualified black people are being let in to schools in place of Asian American people. Mm-hmm. Well, that plays on this mo- this model minority myth, right? That Asian American people came to this country and, and assimilated so well, and they're highly educated. And there are even people who say that Asian Americans genetically have higher IQs, right. which is nonsense. So Asian American people feel this compulsion to assimilate, and then their assimilation is used as a cudgel against Black people? Why can't you do better? Why aren't you smarter? Why aren't you getting into better schools? And that is a tool of white supremacy, right? White supremacy pits people in ethnic minority groups against each other in service to white supremacy, right? right. Because if, if white supremacists, if racist white people can keep Black people fighting Asian people, fighting Jewish people, fighting Latino people, then that's just better for white supremacy all together, right? Because that means white supremacy continues to thrive. So I really would just like people to think about that when they are engaging in these conversations, because this is a difficult time for the AAPI community. It remains a difficult time for the Black community in terms of police brutality. And we really should be supporting one another, not pointing fingers at one another.
13: Absolutely. And just to build off that point, it feeds into this mythology that the white community has created about a scarcity of resources and a scarcity Mm -hmm. of access to power. And that, of course, is designed to keep white folks in power and fully resourced. And so fellow white folks, knock that off. This is our time to step up and forcefully counteract those narratives because we're really the only ones that can do that. And along those
12: lines, we're going to talk about a particular type of bill. It's called Prenda, mm. which is the Preborn Non-Discrimination Act. And we're going to talk about the ways in which Black and Asian women are particularly hurt by these stereotypes that we've been talking about and how they infect and infest conversations around reproductive rights. Yeah. So there's a Texas lawmaker who's introduced this bill, Prenda, right? Mm -hmm. And this bill essentially bans race and sex-selective abortions. I've talked at length about how absurd race-selective bans are because Mm -hmm. I just, I cannot fathom a person who is giving birth to a baby and wondering whether that baby is going to be the same race as they are. That just doesn't make any sense to me.
13: (laughs) Right. It's just, it's ludicrous. But you can tell a white person thought of this by that very framing.
12: (laughs) Exactly. Like, I'm black. Is my baby going to be black? Because if it is, I need to get an abortion. Like, this is just not a conversation that ever happens. But I do want to talk about the sex selective portion of the ban. Yeah. So Prenda bans abortions for certain pregnant people based on their reason for ending the pregnancy, right? Including for people who end pregnancies due to sex preferences. And this is a law that is rooted in truly pernicious anti Asian American Pacific Islander stereotypes about child preference in Asian communities. Right. Mm -hmm. So these sex selective abortion bans operate on this extremely racist and xenophobic assumption that Asian immigrants in the United States are going to exhibit the same sex preferences for male children that may have existed in their countries of origin. And so the impetus behind this legislation is that Asian American pregnant people, Asian American women, in particular, immigrant Chinese and Indian women, will prefer sons over daughters and therefore make reproductive care decisions based on the sex of their fetus.
13: Uh, I mean, tell me this no, isn't happening. It's absolutely not happening. Okay. Of
12: course it's not <laughs> happening. It's just, as I said, it's racist and xenophobic nonsense that is just false. Yeah. And there are even studies to prove that it's false. There's analysis from the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, uh, also called NAPOF. <laughs> it's N-A-P-A-W-F. You'll see that acronym. But it's the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum. And they have analyses that show that foreign-born Chinese American, Korean American, and Indian American women are having more
13: daughters than white American women on average. More daughters. More. More. So not only is the thinking racist, it's racist and wrong. I mean, the bottom line is that AAPI people get abortions for all sorts of reasons and trying to control the biological sex of the child simply isn't one of them, despite what anti-choice numpties in Texas say about it.
12: Right. So the takeaway from this discussion is that sex-selective abortion bans are racist and xenophobic. They -hmm. serve absolutely no purpose. And they simply ratchet up the sorts of stereotypes that folks believe about AAPI communities. So there's a direct line from that sort of racialized misogyny about AAPI women to the type of violence that we're seeing against Asian communities right now. And I feel like that that is something that we should all think about. And that is something that we need to sit with as we support our Asian American brothers and sisters who are really in crisis right now and who are struggling to deal with this Gross uptick in violence against them.
8: I think that there's a, there's a slightly more philosophical question related to this, which is, you know, obviously epidemics may begin in a certain place, but to what extent do, do origins actually matter? Uh, especially once you know we've seen the epicenter of of this pandemic move from uh, you know China to to Italy to and then to kind of take up home for a very long time uh, in in the United States. How do we equate geography and threat when you know epidemic epicenters do tend to tend to move and shift? And this is something that the WHO you know has challenged, which is the naming of diseases for their, their point of origin. Yeah, Several diseases have been renamed to kind of reduce that stigma. It's one of the reasons, you know, COVID-19 is COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2 is, you know, it's completely devoid of, of any geographic signifiers. The one disease that I think really sticks in the minds of people today is still, you know, Ebola virus disease, which is named after the Ebola River So what, what we're seeing and I think and I think the variants are bringing up this conversation again is you know while it's important to understand and control a disease within a specific geography, the conflation of a place as somehow the cause of the emergence or spread of the disease is where we run into uh, very, very real challenges where culturally specific, racially specific, nationally specific, uh, stereotypes and anxieties start to emerge, and that 's really what we fundamentally need to combat against because it leads to very, very bad um, public health policy and it also leads obviously to very significant resentments which simmer over and lead to oppression in so many different ways
9: yeah that 's really helpful because I think our listeners certainly are not going around spouting overtly bigoted <laughs> things, and you know mm. it's it's not that level of racism that is most people's issue. It's sort of these subtler ways that we internalize and probably could do better. Like from the very beginning, thinking about how we're naming
8: new variants. What becomes so dangerous is the ways in which, you know, assigning or ascribing blame to a certain geography or a certain region or certain people becomes a way of assigning innate difference. And that difference becomes Mm -hmm. a, a way that we can dehumanize others to make or render their lives less than equal or even uh, disposable. And I think this is where you see a rather disturbing and clear through line from racism and snarky or slur statements around, you know, for instance, the, the China flu or China virus or what have you, and then ultimately to explicit acts of of violence and murder against, for instance, you know, Chinese and Asian populations and and yeah. that's where we really see the ways in which this connects so powerfully so vividly and so disturbingly
0: We've just heard clips today starting with the United States of Anxiety saying the names of the Atlanta shooting victims and highlighting the invisibility of Asian people in America. 538 Politics dove deep on the history of anti-Asian legislation, U.S. Empire, and the Philippines. In the Thick ran the list of violence and legislation against Asians and the targeting of Asian women in particular. The United States of Anxiety explained the anti-Japanese sentiment that flared due to the oil crisis. Democracy Now! ran an additional list of anti-Asian violence. Worst Year Ever explained the connection between ethnic cleansing events and white ignorance of Asian history in America. Boom Lawyered broke down the ways that white supremacy keeps minorities divided and white people ignorant, and Social Distance addressed the dangers of assigning origins for diseases when there's no benefit to doing so and horrific inevitable downsides. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from the United States of Anxiety discussing the myth of the model minority and the way commentators strive to discount the relevance of history. And Worst Year Ever had a conversation about the religious influences on the Atlanta shooter, including purity culture, the relationship between Christian fundamentalism and women, and deeply pervasive shaming about sex. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you.
14: Hey, Jay, it's Craig from Ohio. And I had an interesting experience listening to episode 1406, Rest in Peace, Austerity, about the American Rescue Plan. Because I, as you know, what I think of as a pretty doctrinaire left winger, have a problem with a lot of the uh, programs in the American Rescue Plan. Two in particular are the minimum wage. Well, that's not actually in the ARP, but uh, I don't want to rely on minimum wage as a way to lift people out of poverty and also the uh, child tax credit. It's not that I oppose those things getting done. I do think if it's the best we can do, they need to be included in legislation. The thing is, I just have different policy preferences that no one is talking about, including on the show, the clips that you played. I would, rather than raising the minimum wage, like to see a program for government jobs that started at $20 an hour. Everyone could get one of these jobs. There's certainly plenty of work to do, certainly possible to pay people to work for the government. I, myself, am the son of a social worker, a former librarian, and married to a public school teacher. So I know it's possible to live <laughs> on the uh, payment of a government job. I think if, if we did that, then the private sector would have to compete with those readily available jobs provided by the public for work that the public needs to be done that would cause an increase in minimum wages. And then on the, the child tax credit, I just, in principle, am not a big fan of uh, what I think of as neoliberal policies, like giving money, checks to citizens. I would much rather that we had a robust social safety net, excellent public schools, early child education, all kinds of subsidies and assistance, so that people would not need to just get a pot of money that then they would take into the private marketplace, into the capitalist system, where they would have to fend for themselves as individuals. I'd much rather we had a robust social safety net and people had the option whether they wanted to participate in the marketplace by whatever kind of money that they can earn. And then at the end of the show, the guy brought up runaway population growth, which, as you know, is a hobby horse of mine. And I think he did a good job responding to his point. I just wanted to add to that, that in my mind, the way to solve the problem of environmental devastation because of an excess number of human beings on this planet is to have the kinds of programs that support all people, all citizens, uh, like the kind I was just describing. And in that way, you would find that birth rates will decline on their own. We don't need any policies. We don't need any incentives. There's no reason to think about, well, how can we encourage or discourage people from procreating? We will do it on our own if we have the kind of educational system, social safety structure, and just general support of your community. We know from years and years of study that population birth rates goes down when a society is functioning at a high level with the kinds of safety nets that are supporting all citizens. Okay, thanks for your time. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.
11: Hi, Jay. This is Rich responding to your comments about my previous audio clip, which pointed out one serious problem in the American Rescue Plan. As I said, it increases the child tax credit. In your response, you cited a study that says spending on child poverty does not increase births. This study would apply to programs like aid to families with dependent children. For years, I've criticized Bill Clinton for getting on board with John Kasich and other Republicans to cut back this program. For those who don't know, AFDC attempted to reduce the worst effects of abject poverty on children, but that was too much for Republicans, who not only insisted it be cut back, but renamed temporary assistance for needy families because they wanted to shame these families with a pejorative in the title. You should not think I'm against helping children in poverty. I can only imagine the struggle they face. Ending poverty is an entirely appropriate goal for our society. Then no child will grow up in poverty. However, programs to help child poverty are completely different from tax credits, which aren't directed at helping children in poverty. They only incidentally help some children in poverty, but they are instead intended to give parent money to parents. This is a completely different issue. Many parents, unfortunately, don't get to plan their families before they have children. It would be great if they could all do that, which is why I have Planned Parenthood on a revolving contribution. But for a very large percentage of parents, it is fair to say they consider whether they can afford to raise a child before having one. For these parents, knowing the government will give them a substantial cash payment every month will enable more of them to afford to have a child. I don't need a study to know that this will increase population. It would be one thing if this were a temporary response to the pandemic. It could be argued The parents are particularly burdened, but the people behind this increase to the child tax credit want to make it permanent. If it becomes permanent, it will be a permanent incentive for population growth. One of your responses was that it's racist to say aid to poor children is an incentive to population growth. It is no doubt true that many people opposed AFDC because they thought more black mothers got this aid, which was never true. It would not surprise me if Republicans invented their attack on AFDC with the intention of using racism for political gain. None of this applies to the child tax credit. There is, however, a question of discrimination. The child tax credit is discriminatory. It values parents over non-parents. In implementing it, the government is making a value judgment, which says that it is better for people to decide to have children. This should be a personal decision, and the government should not weigh in. The good news is that the increase in the child tax credit in the American Rescue Plan does have one enormous benefit. As other people have noted, it demonstrates the government can make direct payments to individuals. It demonstrates how we can create a universal basic income, where we make a direct payment to all working-age adults. Andrew Yang, in his presidential bid, talked extensively about the benefits of a UBI, but I want to concentrate on just one. Democrats have so far failed to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Our opponents were able to exclude it from the American Rescue Plan because they claimed it didn't fit the rules for reconciliation. A direct payment to every working-age adult, however, does fit those rules. And we know this because the boost to the child tax credit was passed under reconciliation. My suggestion is we ditch the child tax credit and provide a weekly payment to each person 18 to 67. We can get the same effect as the minimum wage increase with a payment of $300 a week. A person working 40 hours a week for $7.25 an hour would then have a weekly income equivalent to earning $14.75 an hour. This benefit would be immediate. We would not have to wait four years for it to take effect. We could then work on decreasing costs for working people by implementing a single-payer health care plan, for example. We could take steps to additionally increase wages towards what people actually need, such as ending the trade deficit. In most of the country, a living wage for a person with a child is at least $25 an hour. If we could reach that goal, then individuals could decide to have a child without the risk of plunging themselves into poverty. So please join me in asking for an end to the child tax credit and the immediate implementation of a universal basic income. It's better public policy, and the Democratic Party has the power to implement this right now. Thank you for your hard work to provide best to the left, and thanks for the opportunity to speak out about these issues.
0: Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com If you have thoughts on the child tax credit, as we just heard from those two callers, or uh, the ongoing debate which sort of came up incidentally between a universal jobs guarantee and a universal basic income please keep those coming in for today though I want to expand a bit on the main topic for today and or one aspect of it which is about white ignorance being a fundamental part of white supremacy so you know people for the last like five or so years or maybe a little more people have been getting, term white supremacy into the mainstream a little bit. And obviously, there's lots of confusion about that. There's lots of pushback. When we think of white supremacists, we think of Klan members and the hoods and the whole deal. And the sort of new definition that is becoming more accepted, especially in sort of academic circles and activist circles, is upholding structural racism and the structure of white supremacy simply being the concept that the white race is, in a variety of ways, better or superior to other groups of people. And so, you know, we've done lots to try to clarify that meaning over the years. But one thing that gets said is that you can be A member of a white supremacist society, you can even yourself be helping to uphold a white supremacist system sometimes or even often without knowing it. And I think that that blows people's minds. They have no idea what that could possibly mean. How could you be racist without knowing it? Their idea of racism is having a hatred in your heart for other races. And so the the confusion really gets exacerbated at that point. But I think that ignorance being a fundamental part of white supremacy is a really concrete example of what we mean. Because if ignorance is part of the problem, then everyone is affected by it by default. We all start ignorant and then go through life learning things. But if there are these really fundamental aspects of our history that we remain ignorant to and that our collective ignorance helps perpetuate harmful systems, well, then that's a really good example of how we can all be effectively helping to perpetuate a white supremacist system without having any idea we're doing it. So. Imagine that we lived in a country with a long history of anti-Asian discrimination, but collectively decided to not talk about it. First of all, who would be making those decisions to not talk about it, and why? Would it be a conspiratorial cabal working to suppress information that people would otherwise desperately want to have? You know, would all the people in all of the school boards and all the school districts all across the country get on a big conference call and discuss the importance of not talking about the history of anti-Asian lynching, for instance, No, obviously not. It's much more like the invisible hand of history being written by the victors. If the dominant group is overrepresented in positions of power, like educational curriculum writing boards, then they are very naturally going to want to focus on, number one, what they see as important. And there's nothing nefarious about that, but it does come with a certain perspective. And second. Maybe even unconsciously, they're going to want to steer away from issues that make their group look bad, especially if they don't think that their group deserves to be painted with a broad brush. Whereas if you were to talk about anti-Asian lynching, for instance, you might get the idea like white people as a group are opposed or racist towards uh, Asian people, and they wouldn't want that. So that topic just doesn't get put in the curriculum. But wait you might say, you know, what about the civil rights movement? That doesn't make white people look particularly good and we talk about that. Well, yes, but the civil rights movement is a redemption story, so much so that conservatives today like to claim ownership of Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement as if they wouldn't have been vociferously opposed to it had they been there at the time. And so, it is okay to talk about how things were bad before, as long as it's part of a redemption story. And, you know, I would argue that it's a false redemption story, but that's how it gets framed nonetheless. But we've never really redeemed ourselves for our history with Asians, so it's a story that can't be told because there's no happy ending, but getting back to the hypothetical school board deciding to not create a segment on Japanese concentration camps during World War II, or the first discriminatory immigration law being about Asian women, there's even another layer to this. One of the tenets of white supremacy that comes up over and over again is that other groups get to be seen and described as groups. But white people, as a group, get to be seen not as a group, but as a collection of individuals. And the difference between the two is night and day, but this gives a really good example of how that plays out in real life. So when you're deciding whether or not to teach about anti-Asian lynchings, if the perpetrators of those murders can be thought of as simply individuals who are not representative of the group that they belong to— Well, then they're just individuals who have committed a crime. And if it's not representative of anything larger, then what would be the argument for teaching it in a class? What would the lesson be to be learned there? You know, if it's just a true crime story and not a teachable moment, then you might as well leave it out. And that is how the invisible hand of history, textbook, and curriculum writers casually erase anti-Asian history from our collective minds, which leaves a big gap to be filled with stereotypes and not much else. So when someone expresses doubt that just growing up in America is enough to turn you into someone who helps, even if unknowingly, perpetuate structural racism, then this is the story you can tell them. If ignorance is all it takes to perpetuate hell racism forward through the generations, then we have just found the solution to the perpetual motion machine. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design, and so on. And of course, thanks to all those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. But now everyone can earn rewards and support the show just by telling everyone you know about it using our Refer-O-Matic. Find all the details at bestofleft.com slash refer.